0: Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you all for tuning in to episode 16 of the page turners, man. I, I'm truly, <clears throat> excuse me, truly appreciative and thankful to everyone who has um, listened to the broadcast, man. Those of you who have uh, subscribed to the podcast, I'm thoroughly excited about uh, where this journey is headed, uh, there's a lot going on. I need to get some, do some housekeeping before I dig into, um, chapter three, uh, of Black Theology and Black Power by the late great Dr. James H. Cone. Um, more and more these days, man, uh, I'm seeing a need for James Combs. I'm seeing more of a need for black Christians to take what many would call radical stances against what we are seeing currently is, um, I think it's fair to say in many regards that white evangelicalism uh, is a tool of white supremacy, a major tool of white supremacy. And that's why I think there needs to be more voices like Dr. James Cohn. If this is your first time tuning into the Page Turners, my name is Elgin Bailey, also known as Big L, also known as Mr. Catch-22. Um, this is not a Christian podcast, but I am a Christian doing a podcast. Uh, We'll be doing a number of book studies. It just so happens that season one happens to be Black Theology and Black Power. Um, the thing that sparked me to choose Black Theology and Black Power largely was the life of Dr. James Cone, but also his recent death. Uh, I felt like more people needed to hear his voice. I think his voice is incredibly instrumental and needed in this delicate and fragile time that we live in. Uh, At a time now where you have such great, great divide within the faith and that divide is along racial lines where you have one side uh, taking radical stances saying just preach the gospel just preach the gospel preach the gospel preach the gospel don't worry about the, the 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 dead bodies in the street don't worry about Mass incarceration. Don't don't, don't worry about uh, the, the school system. Don't, don't worry about white liberals. Don't don't worry about all these things. Don't don't worry about the need to to preach and teach black self respect. Don't don't worry about that. Just just preach the gospel. And I say to that, it's easy to be in that position. It's easy to say. Preach the gospel when you come from a certain privilege, whether it's skin or economics, it's easy to say preach the gospel. It's easy to say preach the gospel when you're sitting in a protected position. It's easy to say that. It's one thing to be hungry. It's one thing to be oppressed. It's one thing to be suffering. There's one thing that needs to to feel validated. There's another way to, to, to want to continue to fight just to show and prove that you are human. That's the other side to preach the gospel. This has not been a incredibly popular topic. Uh, and I say that and I'm not talking about this particular book or this particular podcast because I didn't come into this podcast looking for popularity. I didn't come into this podcast, man, looking for notoriety. I didn't come in this podcast looking for great uh, or, or some sort of financial gain. I came into this podcast to do this podcast spif specifically on books because I believe there is a great gulf, a great need for black voices doing book reviews, uh, audio books. There's a need for books being talked about from a black perspective. There's a need for that. And I believe that the page turners will begin to light the path for others to begin to fill that void. So, again, to all you guys who have stood by, man, and, and, and supported me on this journey, we are on episode 16, man. The grind continues. We are moving forward. Uh, trying to think of any more housekeeping before I dig into trying to finish in chapter three tonight. Um, Let me see. School starts back up on Monday. So my semester begins on Monday. I have class Monday night. So I'm trying to decide how I'm going to do the podcast. I'm going to continue to do the page turners. The page turners is not going anywhere. It's a passion. It's something I love. But now I'm trying to decide how to do it, and working on my time management because I'm a father, a husband, I have a full-time job, and I'm also a full-time student. Um, So I want to make sure that, A, my home and my wife and my children are taken care of, that I fulfill my responsibilities at my job, fulfill my responsibilities also as a student pursuing this degree, but also make sure that I'm maintaining my commitment to you guys. So I don't know if I'm going to continue to do it three times a week, the 30 minutes uh, episodes, or if I'm going to go once a week for 90 minutes. I think 90 minutes might be a bit much doing this particular type of podcast, but we'll figure it, we'll figure it out, man. I'm going to continue. I just want to give you guys a heads up, just in case you look up one day and. You know, you're looking for your page turner's fix, and it's not there. <laughs> Just understand that it's not the fact that I have abandoned you guys in any shape or form, man. It's uh, that I'm trying to make sure I balance everything appropriately. One last thing: I am deciding on begin researching what the next uh, season is going to be, and one of the things is. Each book will be considered a season. Each time I get in front of the microphone is an episode. Okay, Uh, seasons are the books. Episodes are each time I get in front of the microphone. So this is episode 16. Black Theology and Black Power is season one. So I'm already beginning to think about what season two is going to be what book we're going to read, and I got a couple in mind, uh, but if you have any suggestions, man, feel free to hit me up at Elgin Bailey on Twitter, Uh, you can find me Elgin Bailey on Facebook, or you can send me an email to pageturnersbtm at gmail.com, let me know what you think, man, any ideas on any particular books that you would like to see me uh, chop up, and we'll see. Or your boys won't pick. <laughs> and I have spent almost ten minutes uh, going into this particular topic. That's ten more minutes that I wanted to spend just doing housekeeping. So, without further ado, let's dig into Chapter Three of Black Theology and Black Power. And the text reads: It is unfortunate that such men were in the minority, even among the Quakers. There was a temptation to let economics rather than religion determine one's actions. The Quakers, like most groups who could afford it, owned slaves. But the spirit of freedom and liberty in civil matters was at least a concern of some Quakers, which is more than can be said of others. In light of this history, it is not surprising that the white churchmen have either condemned Black power or, as more often the case, joined the other silent intellectuals in our colleges and universities. Let me pause right there and tell you this. If you are a Christian and you are silent on what is taking place in regards to white supremacy and the, 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 the awful evils that it is putting on black people, you are complacent in your silence. Also, Dr. Cole mentions uh, colleges and universities. <sighs> Excuse me. Many of these colleges, universities, seminaries are some of the most dangerous places for black minds to ever be involved in. Um, black seminary, I mean, seminaries in and of itself tend to be very, very dangerous ground and tend to push a white evangelical westernized view of Christianity. And it is devoid of black faces, as students, and black faculty. And that's a problem. And the text reads, They have never championed black freedom. During the most fervent period of lynching, the church scarcely said a word against it. In fact, Gunnar Mydahl pointed out, Methodist and Baptist preachers were active in reviving the Ku Klux Klan after the First World War. There's little question that the church has been and is a racist institution. There's little sign that she even cares about it. And I think the same can be said now, man. The same can be said now. The the text reads, I'm sorry. Some churchmen probably would want to point out their unselfish involvement in the civil rights struggle of the 1950s and the 1960s. And I'm going to say, yes, you have churchmen right now, white churchmen also known as Dr. John MacArthur, who is using his, man, listen, his his participation in the Civil Rights Movement, his march, his standing with uh, John Perkins as some sort of badge of honor that he was actually involved in the Civil Rights Movement, meaning he has the freedom to actually address social justice issues it's just a weird very disconcerting spot but you're seeing that currently today now remember this text was written in 1969 and in 2018 we are still seeing that type of behavior it was a black man martin luther king who challenged the conscience of his nation by his unselfish giving of his time and eventually his life for poor blacks and whites of america The church does not appear to be a community willing to pay up personally. It is not a community which views every command of Jesus as a call to the cross. It appears instead as an institution whose existence depends on the evils which produce the riots in cities. With this in mind, we must say that when a minister condemns the rioters and blesses by silence the conditions which produce the riots, he gives up his credentials as a Christian minister and becomes inhuman. He is an animal, just like those who, backed by an ideology of racism, order the structure of the society on the basis of white supremacy. We need men who refuse to be animals and are resolved to pay the price so that all men can be something more than animals. Whether black power advocates are that grouping, we will have to wait and see. But the church has shown many times that it loves life, and it is not prepared to die for others. It has not really gone where the action is with the willingness to die for the neighbor, but has remained aloof from the sufferings of men. It is a chaplaincy to sick middle-aged egos. It stands or sits condemned by its very whiteness. Doctor cone is punching him in the mouth. This leads one to conclude, that Christ is operating outside of the denominational white church. The real church of Christ is that grouping which identifies with the suffering of poor by becoming one with them. While we should be careful in drawing the line, the line must nevertheless be drawn. The church includes not only the black power community, but all men who view their humanity as inexplicably related to every man. It is that grouping with a demonstrated willingness to die for the prevention of the torture of others, saying with Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Is there any hope for the white church? (laughs) Hope is dependent upon whether it will ask from the depths of his being with God, what must I do to be saved? The person who seriously asks that question is a person capable of receiving God's forgiveness. It is time for the white church to ask that question with a willingness to do all for Christ. Like the Philippian jailers who put the question to St. Paul, the answer is the same for white church as it is to them. Repent and believe on the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is no other way. It must own that it has been and is a racist institution whose primary purpose is the perpetuation of white supremacy man, do they understand how far that would go? How far that acknowledgement would go to say, yeah, man, the white church is a racist institution and it has been a tool to push white supremacy. And we sick and tired of it too, but we don't know how in the world to change it. Help us. And the text reads, but it is not enough to be sorry or to admit wrong. To repent involves change in one's whole being. In the Christian perspective, it means conversion. Speaking of Jesus' understanding of repentance, Barkham says it means to lay hold on the salvation which is already at hand and to give up everything for it. This involves a willingness to renounce self and the world and to grasp the gift of salvation now here in Jesus Christ. But there is no repentance without obedience and there is no obedience without action. And this is always action in the world with Christ fighting the evils which hold men captive. For the white churches, this means a radical reorientation of their style in the world towards blacks. It means that they must change sides, giving up all claims to lofty neutrality. It means that they will identify utterly with the oppressed, thus <clears throat> inevitably tasting the sting of oppression themselves. It means that they will no longer stand silently or march weekly protesting, but will join the advocates of black power in their unambiguous identification with the oppressed and with the revolution made by the oppressed. A racist pattern has been set and the church has been a contributor to the pattern. Now it must break that pattern by placing its life at stake. Ah, Excuse me, family. Mm-mm. Okay, and the text reads, In a culture which rewards patriots and punishments, punishes dissenters, it is difficult to be prophetic and easy to perform one's duties in the light of the objectives of the nation as a whole. This was true for the state church of Germany during the Third Reich, and it is true now of the white church in America. As blacks begin to question seriously their place in this society, It is always much easier to point to the good and the evil as means of rationalizing one's failure to call into question the evil itself. It is easier to identify with the oppressor as he throws sops to the poor than align himself with the problems of the poor as he endures oppression. Moreover, The moral and the religious implications of any act of risk are always sufficiently cloudy to make it impossible to be certain of the right action. Because man is finite, he cannot reach that state of security in which he is free of anxiety when he makes moral decisions. This allows the irresponsible religious man to grasp a false kind of religious and political security by equating law and order with Christian morality. If someone calls his attention to the inhumanity of the political system towards others. He can always explain his loyalty to the state by suggestion that their system is the least evil any other existing political state. He can also point to the lack of clarity regarding the issues, whether they concern race relations or the war in Vietnam. This will enable him to compartmentalize the various segments of the societal power so that he can rely on other disciplines to give the word on their appropriate course of action. This seems to characterize the style of many religious thinkers as they respond to the race problem in America. Therefore, it is not surprising that the sickness of the church in America is also found in the mainstream of America. Religious thought. As with the church as a whole, theology remains conspicuously silent regarding the place of black men in American society. In the history of modern American theology, there are few dissenters on black slavery and current black oppression among the teachers, writers of theology. And those who do speak are usually unclear. Too often their comments are not a replica or but a replica of current cultural ethos, drawing frequently from non-theological disciplines for the right word on race relations. More often, however, Theologians simply ignore the problem of color in America. Any theologian involved in professional societies can observe that few have attempted to deal seriously with the problem of racism in America. It is much easier to deal with the textual problems associated with some biblical book or to deal objectively with religious pheno- phenomenon than it is to ask about the task of theology in a current disintegration disintegration of society. It was seen that it's time for theology to make a radical break with its identity with the world by seeking to bring to the problem of color, the revolutionary implications of the gospel of Christ. It is time for theology to leave as I retire and join the real issues, which deal with the dehumanization of blacks in America. It is time for theologians to relate their work to life and death issues and so doing to execute this function of bringing the church to recognition of its task in the world. <laughs> For the sickness of the church in America is intimately involved with the bankruptcy of American theology. When a church fails to live up to its appointed mission, it means that theology is partly responsible. Therefore, it is impossible to criticize the church and its lack of relevancy, without criticizing theology for its failure to perform its function. Theology functions within the church. Its task is to make sure that the church is the church. The mission of the church is to announce it to act out the gospel it has received. When the church fails in its appointed task by seeking to glorify itself rather than Jesus Christ, it is the job of theology to remind her what the church truly is. For theology is that discipline which has responsibility of continuously examining the proclamations of the church in light of Jesus Christ. Dogmatic theology is the scientific test to which Christian church puts herself regarding the language about God, which is peculiar to her. The task of theology, then, is to criticize and revise the language of the church. This includes not only language as utterly speech, but the language of radical involvement in the world. The church not only speaks of God in worship, but it is but it but as it encounters the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, excuse me, it is a task of theology to make sure that the church's thoroughly human speech, whether word or deed, agrees with the essence of the church. That is with Jesus Christ, who is God in his glorious approach to man in revelation and reconciliation. The church cannot remain aloof from the world because Christ is in the world. Theology then, if it is to serve the need of the church, must become worldly theology. And that makes some of y'all uncomfortable just hearing that. This means that it must make sure that the church is in the world and that its word and deed are harmonious with Jesus Christ. It must make sure that the church's language about God is relevant to every new generation and its problems. It is for this reason that the definitive theological trustees can never be written. Every generation has its own problems, as does every nation. Theology is not then an intellectual exercise, but a worldly risk. Woo! American theology has failed to take the worldly risk. It has largely ignored its domestic problems on race. It has not called the church to be involved in confronting the society with the meaning of kingdom in light of Christ even though it says with Tulek that theology is supposed to satisfy two basic needs, the statement of truth of Christian message and the interpretation of this truth for every new generation. It has virtually ignored the task of relating truth of the gospel to the problems of race in America. The lack of a relevant, risky theological statement suggests that theologians, like others, are unable to free themselves from the structures of the society. The close identity of American theology with the structures of society, may also account for the failure to produce theologians comparable to the structure in Europe, like Boltman, Barth, and Bonhoeffer. Some try to account for this by pointing to the youth of America, but with that seems an insufficient explanation since their other disciplines appear to behold their own. <laughs> Mm -hmm. wow sometimes you just read man and you gotta pause and you literally have to pause I think this podcast tonight family might be a little longer I want to try to finish up chapter 3 so I apologize in advance for going over the the 30-minute mark, if that is the case, which I do believe it will be. I do believe it will be. Uh, Maybe not. We'll see. And I'm sorry, and the text reads, In Europe, the situation seems to be somewhat different. Karl Barth's theology was born in response to the political and economic crisis in Germany He began his career as a liberal theologian. He believed that the kingdom of God would soon be achieved through the establishment of a socialist society. He put his confidence in latent resources of humanity, and this meant that Barth, along with many liberal theologians of his day, believed in the adequacy of the religious man, the adequacy of religion, and the security of the culture and civilization. The First World War shattered his hope of the kingdom of God on earth. The civilized man who was supposed to be moving steadily, even rapidly toward perfection, had cast himself into the orgy of destruction. In the wake of the war came communism and fascism, both of which denied Christian values. As a result of the war in his aftermath, Barth felt that the problem of man was much more desperate than most people realize. and would not be solved simply by changing the economic structures. For a while, Barth was in a state of shock. In particular, he was... Burdened with the task of declaring the Christian message to his congregation every Sunday. What could he say? People did not want to hear. He was quite sure. His own man-made philosophy or his own opinion. In due time, Barth was led with his anthropotic conception of Christianity to a thoroughgoing, theocentric conception. He was led from trust in a man to complete trust in God alone. He was convinced that he could not identify God's word with man's word. No human righteousness can be equated with divine righteousness. No human act can be synonymous with God's act. Even the so-called good which man does in this world counts as nothing in God's eyes. To identify God's righteousness with human righteousness is to fail to see the infinite qualitative distinction between God and man. The, distinguish, the distinction between that which is human human. And that which is divine. The radical change in Barth's theological perspective had nothing to do with the abstract theological thinking, but with his own confrontation with the political and economic and social situation in Germany. It was the rise of a new political order that caused Barth to launch a devastating and relentless attack on natural theology. When American theologians picked up the problem, they apparently did not did so without really knowing that for Barth, and his sympathizers, the natural natural theology issue was not merely an intellectual debate, but an event, an event about the life and death of men. Observing the rise of Hitler during the 1930s, Barthes saw clearly the danger of identifying man's word with God's word. Excuse me. To say that God's word is wholly unlike man's word means that God stands in judgment against all political systems. The work of the state can never be identified or confused with God's word. In Hitler's campaign against the Jews, an alien God dominated Germany. Men were being slaughtered on an altar. It was no time for a caption of lofty objectivity. When Barth and me, no natural theology, no blending of the word of God. and the word of God, a political implication was clear. Hitler is the Antichrist. God has set his face against the third rank. <clears throat> Excuse me. Americans have generally agreed that Barth's rejection of natural theology was a mistake. Is that because American theologians still see a close relationship between the structure of the society and Christianity? As long as there is no absolute difference between God and man, it is possible to view America as the land of the free and home of the brave, despite the oppression of blacks. As long as theory is identified with the system, it is impossible to criticize it by bringing the judgment of God's righteousness upon it. Barthes' theology may serve as an example of how to relate theology to life. The whole of theology represents a constant attempt to engage the church in his life situations. Its notable development it's clearly a response to new problems with men, face in work involvement. If American theology is going to serve the needs of the church by relating the gospel to its political, economic, and social situation in America, it must first cut its adopting dependence upon kind of Europe as a place to tell what theology ought to be talking about. Some European theologians, like Barth and Bonhoeffer may serve as examples of how to relate theology to life, but not in defining our major issues. It has overlooked the unique problem of powerless blacks. In the new era of black power, the era in which blacks are sick of white white power and are prepared to do anything and give everything for freedom now, theology cannot afford to be silent, not to speak, not to do theology, around this critical problem is to say that the black predicament is not crucial to Christian faith. At a moment when blacks are determined to stand up as human beings either they are shot down, the word of the cross certainly is focused upon them. Will no one speak that word to the dead and dying? Theologians confronted by this question may distinguish possible responses. Some will, timely, or passionately continue to appeal to Paul's <laughs> about the powers that be, we will have law and order theologians as we have law and order pastors and laymen. Others will insist that theology as such is necessary and to social evil. These men will continue as a vac- as in a vacuum writing footnotes on their Arametic centrum of Mark's Gospel or the authorship of theologian Jermicata, or on the phenomenon of faith. Could a black man hope that there was still others as theologians will join the oppressed in their fight for freedom? These theologians will speak unequivocally of revelation, scripture, God, Christ, grace, faith, church, ministry, and hope, so that the message comes through loud and clear The black revolution is the work of Christ. If theology fails to reevaluate its task in the light of of black power, the emphasis on the death of God will not add the needed dimension. This will mean that the white church and black theology. Sorry, this will mean that the white church and white theology are dead, not God. It will mean that God will choose another means of implementing his word of righteousness in the world. And I think that's crazy because sometimes, man, I hear people, you know, who are so gun ho about uh, scripture that they think that the only truth that they can find, only truth that is able to be seen or felt or anything along those lines is truth from the scripture. And the text reads, the white response so far in and out of the church is, not yet, which in a twisted rhetoric of the law of the free means never. Law and order is a sacred incarnation of priests of the old order, and the faithful respond with votes, higher police budgets, and Gestapo le- legislation. Private and public arsenals of incredible destructive force testify to the determination of a sick and brutal people to put an end to black revolution and indeed to black people. The black man has violated the conditions under which he is permitted to breathe and the air is heavy with the potential for genocide. The confrontation of black people as real persons is so strange and out of harmony with the normal pattern of white behavior that most whites cannot even begin to understand the meaning of black humanity. In this situation of revolution, revolution and reaction, the church must decide where its identity lies. <clears throat> will it continue its chaplaincy to the forces of oppression, or will it embrace the cause of liberation, proclaiming in word and indeed the gospel of Christ? That is the end of chapter three in black theology and black power by the late great dr james Cone, the next chapter we will begin uh is titled the black church and black power the black church and black power this is your boy big L, man with another episode of the Page Turners. This particular season, Black Theology and Black Power, man. Reach out and touch your boy. I love to hear from you, man. Let's chop it up. Any ideas, critiques, criticism, or complaints, send them to your boy, man. Till next time.